At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to today's MLN Connects National Provider Call. All lines will remain in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session. This call is being recorded and transcribed. If anyone has any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I will now turn the call over to Nicole Cooney. Thank you. You may begin. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Cooney from the Provider Communications Group here at CMS, and I'll be your moderator today. I'd like to welcome you to this MLN Connects Quality Payment Program final rule call. MLN Connects calls are part of the Medicare Learning Network. The Quality Payment Program allows clinicians to choose the best way to deliver quality care and participate in the program based on their practice size, specialty, location, or patient population. During today's call, we'll discuss the provisions in the recently released final rule. Before we begin, I'd like to tell everyone that or remind everyone that today's call is via teleconference only. It's not a webinar. You should have received a link to the slide presentation for today's call in your registration emails. You can follow along with our speakers using this presentation. If you've not already done so, please view and download the presentation from the following URL, www.cms.gov. NPC. Again, that's www.cms.gov NPC. Once you're on this page, find the date of today's call to access the call materials. This call is being recorded and transcribed, and audio recording and written transcripts will be posted to the MLN Connects call website. An announcement will be placed in the MLN Connects provider e-news when these are available. And I'd like to thank everyone who took the opportunity to submit questions when they registered for today's call. We took these questions into consideration as we developed today's presentation. And at this time, it's my pleasure to turn the call over to CMS Acting Administrator Andy Slavitt for opening remarks. Andy? Thanks, Nicole. And good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to our conversation this afternoon around the Quality Payment Program. Uh, which is, uh, as Nicole mentioned, uh, intended to be a conversation uh, to talk about our progress together uh, in advancing the Medicare program. And I just want to say at the outset that I know that any changes to a program as big and as important to all of you as Medicare uh, represent challenges. And as a result of that, we are trying extra hard to have as many lines of communication open, both directly to us, uh, to other people in your community, and many, many forms of getting questions answered. Uh, we have built a special uh, location called qpp.cms.gov, which today I think answers probably, you know, truly 80 to 90% of the questions that most people have. That site is going to transform into being something that physicians and other clinicians will be able to use in a really convenient way to participate in the, in the program. The, the second thing we've really tried to do is make sure that people understand that our approach to what we're doing in the quality payment program is intended to move the Medicare program in the right direction for the long term. So uh, we're not uh, so focused on changes that happen immediately, and I think what you'll find is that in the first year and even in the first several years of the program, um, there is actually a lessening, uh, in most cases, of burden, uh, an increase in flexibility and opportunities, 
based on the way programs work today so that people can gradually adapt to any changes that occur. But high and above all is that um, we believe what we have heard from all of you is something that we are committed to, which is to make sure that this program is about patient care, not about measurement systems or payment systems or those approaches. And to that end, I think you, you will see as you get as we go through the details that while there's a lot of them, um, many of them are increasingly being worked into the background of the program, and, and many of them are intended to create more choices for you. So on this call today, you're going to hear from our team as they talk about a couple of the basic options that exist uh, in the quality payment program. Uh, and then one of them is the program that's known as uh, alternative payment models or advanced alternative payment models. What those are in plain English to me are different approaches, typically approaches that have been thought of by clinicians or uh, physicians directly in communities that have been sent to us and we have built into a model. Um, there are a number of those today, some that focus on primary care, some that focus on specialists, some that are especially designed for smaller practices, some that are especially designed for larger practices. And uh, the um, macro law and the quality payment program is really designed to allow physicians who think it's right for their practice and their patients to enter those programs. The second approach is the approach that you will also hear about, which is which people refer to as MIPS. And I think the way to think of as MIPS, at least the way I think of it, is really just participating in the core part of the Medicare program like you always have and uh, where the Medicare program will make uh, adjustments to payments um, based upon the quality of care delivered based upon an assessment. And that assessment, how that assessment's done is what you'll hear a little bit about in, these deep, in, in this call. But by and large, two things. One, there have been uh, uh, specialty societies and other third parties that have defined a set of metrics. And secondly, uh, we have built in a big part of this program where people create their own metrics uh, with, with, uh, with something called a practice improvement initiative where you essentially define what are the things that work uh, well for your practice. So uh, without oversimplifying things, uh, those are the elements of the program that I think uh, you will uh, be hearing about today. I want to just talk about a couple of design features and then make one more comment and then I'll turn the, the call back over. The, the first is, uh, so the, the question you might ask is, okay, CMS, Congress passes this law, how did you decide uh, on how to put together the rules for it, which is an excellent question. And I think the principal thing I want to leave you with is we did that with a lot of listening, a lot of communication, what, what we call um, user-driven design, which is just a fancy way of saying we got into the field and heard a lot of feedback um, from people on what they were most concerned about. And what we heard in the main was people were increasingly worried about the burden that they were facing of things that are distracting them away from patient care. Now, that's not something that I could tell you we can solve in, in, in a moment, but I can tell you it's something that uh, really we related to and felt like we could make a big dent in over the long term, and even with some big steps immediately. So some of the things we've done, uh, we reduced the number of things being measured from the current programs that measure quality in half. Next, uh, what we 
did was we created more flexibility and more paths, including how quickly people might adapt to the program and including um, the kinds of measures that people might want to use. In other words, if you see a measure that's not right for your practice, you don't have to use it. You can pick the ones that, that apply to your practice. And third is we've exempted um, many, many of the practices who see small volumes or small uh, dollar amounts of Medicare patients. Those are just, those are just some of uh, the most important things. And then as I talked about, we created more and more paths for advanced alternative payment models, which was what I referred to uh, a bit earlier at the beginning of the call. So uh, with that, I think we are uh, not done yet. We are eager to see how things are working in practice, which is why we've staggered things the way we have. It's also why we continue to have conversations like this and collect comments, because I can assure you that the program will continue to adapt based upon what's working and what's not. The final thing I want to address is a question that I've received from some quarters. Uh, Andy, tell me what's different about things since the presidential election uh, last week. And it's a very good question. I think it's worth addressing. Uh, and my answer, based upon everything that I know and see and have heard in conversations, is there really is no change. Um, and, that, and I think, uh, why do I think that? One is because this was legislation that passed with very strong bipartisan support. And uh, if you've been around Washington at all, um, you know that's pretty hard to come by. But to give you a sense, 92 senators uh, voted in favor uh, and eight voted no. Uh, and in the House, 392 people uh, voted in favor versus 37 that voted no. So there's a real strong commitment to the program. Uh, also, because I think the law shares the aims that you all have expressed and many folks have expressed about the system working better, which is getting away from uh, just paying for um, the, the services that are rendered towards a system that provides a little bit more freedom, like medical home models do, where um, physicians can have more freedom and get paid more for the outcomes. Now, that's obviously a journey, uh, and, and details will evolve over time, but that is an important path. And then the final reason I say so is just my own perspective on the fiscal reality. So let's remember that MACRA didn't um, just appear out of nowhere. MACRA replaced another program, unless we all uh, not shorten our memories too much, they replaced something called the Sustainable Growth Rate, or SDR. Now, if that brought back um, kind of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, it's because it should. It was a bad place um, for all of us. It was bad for physicians. It was bad for patients. It was certainly bad for us at CMS, who every year had to uh, consider really horrible payment cuts uh, to keep the program uh, fiscally operating and get rescued every year by Congress. So nobody wants to go back to that stage, and it's because of that that uh, it's recognized that Medicare needs to be on strong fiscal um, standing. So, uh, you know, yes, while there are um, lots of opportunities for uh, upside here uh, for physicians and improving their practice, uh, and there are also opportunities for some uh, smaller, lower amounts of payment, it's really important to know that this is done in a way that uh, Congress intends to be really strongly fiscally responsible. And so for all of those reasons, as well as, I think, um, dialogue that I've had with people on the Hill and otherwise, 
I want to make sure people uh, take the opportunity to plow ahead, not use uh, anything that happens in the election as a distraction. So anyway, with that, I'm going to uh, hand the call back over to Nicole. I'm going to remind you of, of qpp.cms.gov as a place to go going forward to get answers, and I look forward to continuing to see how things unfold. Nicole? Thank you, Andy. Uh, with that, we're going to jump right into our presentation on the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System presented by Medical Officer Dr. Lamena Tefera. Dr. Tefera? Thanks, Nicole. Uh, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'll be starting at slide number eight, an introduction to the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS. Moving to slide uh, 10, uh, the MIPS program replaces existing programs that you are already familiar with, the Physician Quality Reporting System, the, phys the Physician-Based Value Modifier Program, and the Electronic uh, Health Record, uh, also called the Meaningful Use Program. Uh, these three existing programs will be uh, phased out at the end of 2018, and, and components of each of those programs uh, will be included in the new Merit-Based Incentive Payment System that was authorized by the MACRA legislation. Looking at slide 11, uh, what, is, uh, what is MIPS? Uh, so MIPS has four performance categories, quality, cost, improvement activities, and advancing care information. Uh, MIPS will be focused on Part B uh, clinicians, and the aim of MIPS, as our acting administrator uh, mentioned, is to provide much more flexibility in the choice of activities and measures uh, that are most meaningful to clinicians' practices. Uh, the quality performance category uh, will be built on infrastructure from the physician quality reporting system. The cost performance category will be built on infrastructure from the value-based physician uh, value modifier program. Improvement activities is a new category uh, that will be uh, helping uh, clinicians improve the practice uh, uh, with a focus on the experience of not only beneficiaries, but also improving uh, uh, their experience in their practice, uh, how much time they can spend with their patients, and finding efficiencies. Advancing care information will be built on the Meaningful Use Electronic Health Record uh, Program. Slide 12 gives an overview of the uh, reporting requirements. Uh, the performance year will be uh, 2017. Uh, data submitted will be accepted until uh, the end of March of 2018. Subsequent to that, there'll be uh, feedback available. And the first payment adjustment uh, for the MIPS program will start in 2019. Slide 13. Who will be participating in the MIPS program? Slide 14 describes the clinicians that are called out in the macro legislation uh, that will be participating in MIPS from the beginning. Uh, these include uh, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, clinical nurse specialists, certified uh, registered nurse anesthetists. It's important uh, to note that uh, a physician uh, in the statute has uh, an expansive defini uh, definition uh, per uh, Medicare uh, uh, regulations. Uh, so if, if all these types of uh, physicians 
and professionals will be participating, uh, it's also important to know who will not be participating. And looking at slide number 16, uh, we see the exclusions that are called out in the statute, including uh, those professionals and uh, clinicians uh, that are newly enrolled in Medicare, uh, those below the low volume threshold uh, that Andy mentioned, uh, so uh, Medicare Part B charges less than $30,000 a year or seeing fewer than 100 beneficiaries um, in that same year. Uh, the other group of exclusions are for clinicians who uh, qualify uh, uh, for uh, advanced alternative uh, payment models and meet, and meet requirements uh, uh, to be uh, qualified participants in those advanced alternative payment models. Uh, slide uh, 17 uh, walks us through a scenario asking will I be uh, excluded or not? And what I'd like to emphasize here is simply uh, that uh, the final rule emphasizes an or. If you uh, bill less than $30,000 uh, uh, for the uh, performance year or you see fewer uh, than 100 beneficiaries, you will be exempt uh, from the MIPS program. Slide 18 uh, touches on non-patient-facing clinicians, and uh, there's some uh, details uh, there uh, uh, to note. Um, uh, I'd like to call out that uh, in the rule we say that for a group, uh, if the group is to be identified as non-patient-facing, that they must have greater than 75% of the NPI's billing for that group uh, within the non-patient-facing uh, category. Otherwise, non-patient-facing clinicians should consider themselves as participating in MIPS unless they meet the same exemptions that uh, I just uh, reviewed. Moving to slide uh, 20, uh, I'd like to build upon uh, what Administrator uh, Slavis uh, was calling out as our pick your pace for participation uh, uh, for the quality payment program. Uh, we developed the final rule to allow as much flexibility as possible for clinicians to either ease into the program, uh, 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 begin the program uh, with a, a more robust participation, or try to have near complete participation. And slide 20 uh, describes uh, three scenarios. One is called the test pace, the second uh, uh, partial, uh, partial reporting, and the third uh, full uh, reporting. Slide 20 describes uh, uh, what is possible for the test pace. Uh, and the, the short of it is that if a clinician uh, uh, submits uh, information uh, for, the, uh, for the quality measure performance category, so even a single measure, uh, that uh, they will not be subject to uh, the maximum penalty uh, in the uh, MIPS program. Uh, that is also true if they submit a single improvement activity. Uh, or if they submit uh, the base requirements of the advancing care information performance category. Uh, clinicians have choices identifying uh, what works best for their practice, and they can choose to report the minimum amount of data uh, to be held harmless for the first year. Uh, and that is under the category of testing the waters of the quality payment program. Uh, slide 21 describes uh, 
uh, more participation. Uh, so uh, if clinicians want to participate more, uh, uh, they may do so. And many clinicians, because they're already participating in the current physician quality uh, reporting system um, uh, and are successful and, and, uh, and are accustomed to reporting, uh, will, will, will likely choose this option has a uh, minimum required requirement of 90 consecutive days of reporting for uh, 2017. And based on those measures reported for the quality uh, uh, measure uh, performance category and how their reporting uh, performance compares to other clinicians' um, uh, reporting, uh, they'll, they'll be able to have a higher score than if they had only reported the minimum requirements uh, that I described uh, 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 a moment ago. Slide 21, excuse me, slide 22 describes full participation. And again, uh, this is what uh, uh, many clinicians and certainly many large groups are accustomed to. Uh, and this involves uh, reporting quality measures, uh, uh, participating um, in the uh, advancing care information uh, category, uh, and also uh, successfully participating in the new improvement uh, activities um, uh, category. Uh, we think that there will be uh, many clinicians and groups who choose this option because they're already currently aware of the programs and they see the opportunities uh, to continue to successfully report and uh, earn um, a, a higher uh, um, positive adjustment uh, thanks to their uh, uh, reporting and uh, based on their performance of, of their measures. Uh, moving on to slide 25, uh, as is already uh, known to most participants in existing quality, more, uh, uh, quality programs, uh, clinicians can either participate as individuals or they can participate as a group, uh, and that flexibility exists for the quality payment program. Um, so uh, the choices that uh, uh, clinicians make for the quality payment program will likely track to their preferences in existing programs, um, and, and they will continue to have that option in future years. Slide 27 uh, discusses the weighting of the performance categories. Uh, as I mentioned prior, there will be four performance categories in the MIPS program. Uh, the quality performance category will have the highest weight at 60%. For the transition year, the cost performance category will be at 0%. Um, so although clinicians will receive feedback on uh, the measures uh, uh, that uh, are in the cost performance category, which are claims-based, uh, uh, those uh, their performance in this category will not impact their MIPS composite performance score. The improvement activities category is weighted at 15%, and advancing care information is weighted at 25%. Slide 28 uh, gives an overview of the quality performance category uh, and uh, describes some of the highlights, including that uh, the expectation is uh, reporting uh, at least six measures out of the many options for a minimum of 90 days, and that uh, one of these measures must be an outcome measure uh, or a high-priority measure. And we also like to call out that we have specialty set measures where if you complete the measure set uh, for your specialty, even if there are uh, less than the six, then you'll have successfully completed um, 
the quality performance uh, category. Uh, as I mentioned uh, a little while ago, uh, slide 29 reviews the cost performance category. Uh, uh, there's no reporting requirement for cost. That, that category is all claims-based. In the transition year, uh, this category is zero-weighted, and uh, the intended 10% of this category was transferred to the quality performance category, which you noted was 60% for the transition year. Slide 30 describes uh, the new improvement activities performance category. Uh, this uh, was uh, created by the statute and was not uh, built on an existing program and is focused on improving the clinical practice for clinicians and improving the clinical experience for beneficiaries. Uh, there are multiple uh, subcategories in the improvement activities performance category and there are more than 90 activities covering a range of talk, uh, topics including expanded practice access, beneficiary engagement, care coordination, uh, and patient safety and, and practice assessment. It's important to note that participation in an alternative payment model uh, will uh, result in uh, successful completion of the improvement activity performance category uh, for the transition year. Uh, slide 31 uh, describes uh, special considerations for scoring in the improvement activities. Uh, this includes uh, special consideration for practices with fewer clinicians uh, who will have uh, a, a lower threshold to be uh, successful in the improvement activities. Uh, also special consideration uh, for uh, uh, rural clinicians and non-patient facing uh, clinicians. Uh, clinicians in alternative payment model uh, will have uh, a minimum 50% score, but could be higher, and uh, those in a certified medical home uh, will get uh, a full score. And there are more details of this uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on our QPP homepage. Uh, slide 32 uh, uh, describes the advancing care information performance category. Um, uh, this is built on the infrastructure of the uh, electronic health record incentive program, uh, which is often uh, referred to as meaningful use. And, and the way to look at this performance category is really providing as much flexibility for clinicians who um, uh, had EHR certified for the 2015 edition or the, uh, the uh, 2014 edition. Uh, regardless of which edition clinicians have, there's an opportunity to successfully report uh, the two um, uh, uh, measure sets for reporting are described on slide 32 as advancing care information objectives and measures, and the alternative is, is advancing care information transition objectives and measures. And what slide 33 describes is uh, whether, uh, uh, whether you have 2014 or 2015 edition HR certification, you can successfully report. If you have a mixture for your practice, you can uh, uh, combine uh, your uh, reporting uh, to also be successful. Slide 34 uh, reviews the weighting for the advancing care information performance category, uh, which will be uh, 25%. Uh, if there are uh, clinicians uh, who are hospital-based, uh, that weighting uh, will, will be uh, uh, zeroed. If there are clinicians with various uh, hardships related to uh, uh, EHR, electronic health record implementation, 
those clinicians uh, will be able to uh, submit for uh, a hardship waiver so they can also uh, receive a zero weighting. Let's see. If we can go to, I'm just skipping some slides here. Slide uh, 45 uh, discusses the transition year, um, uh, which uh, will start in uh, January of uh, 2017. And, and this transition year um, is the year that encompasses uh, uh, really the, the important components of the pick your, uh, pick your pace options that I uh, uh, described earlier. Uh, what I'd like to point out from this overview of scoring uh, for the transition year is that the only way a clinician will receive the maximum negative payment adjustment, which is minus 4% for payment year 2019 and performance year 2017, is by choosing to do nothing. So as long as clinicians uh, choose to participate and test the waters as described by even submitting a single quality measure, a single improvement activity, or the base requirements for advancing care information, they will avoid that maximum negative payment adjustment. Those clinicians who uh, choose uh, to uh, submit more robust information uh, uh, because they already have experience with existing programs and, and see that our reporting requirements for, for MIPS uh, will, will, will be built on this and that they can be successful in, in, in MIPS um, uh, building on their current experience, will have the opportunity uh, to have uh, a slightly uh, a positive adjustment. And those, and those clinicians um, uh, who have extensive experience in quality reporting and, and, and uh, larger groups uh, who have uh, larger infrastructure for quality reporting uh, uh, will uh, look for an opportunity to do a full year's worth of reporting and report for all the performance categories uh, and try uh, to perform well to achieve uh, a, a, a moderate or higher payment adjustment in 2019. But the take home is if you participate uh, even a little bit, you'll avoid the maximum payment adjustment and there'll be an opportunity to learn about this program and, and uh, build a foundation uh, for uh, for improvement in in the second um, in the second year, um, slide 46 describes uh, uh, the uh, payment adjustment for exceptional performance performers that the statute uh, allows for 500 million um, over six years uh, for clinicians who achieve a, a performance threshold uh, uh, of exceptional performance. Uh, and the, uh, the, the aim here is to uh, drive uh, quality improvement above uh, just the, uh, the, the more uh, traditional performance threshold and, and, and have uh, uh, clinicians and groups who've already been successful uh, at achieving that threshold uh, have a reason uh, to, to work harder and strive towards opportunities for, for higher uh, payment. Um, uh, slide 47 uh, reviews 
uh, a lot of what I talked about. It's, uh, it's the summary slide. Uh, again, we're streamlining the existing quality reporting programs uh, into one program uh, that is more flexible and more responsive to clinician preferences. Uh, uh, the MIPS program focuses on, on Part B clinicians and is performance-based. Uh, the four performance categories are quality, cost, improvement activities, and advancing care information. Uh, and based on the reporting and performance in these performance categories, uh, there will be a final score uh, calculated, and that, uh, that final score uh, will help determine uh, the adjustment that will be paid to the, uh, the clinicians. Uh, slide 48 uh, is our transition slide to discuss advanced alternative payment models, and I will uh, turn, uh, turn it back to uh, Nicole. Thank you. At this time, we'll pause for a few minutes to complete keypad polling. Holly, we're ready to start polling. CMS appreciates that you minimize the government's teleconference expense by listening to these calls together using one phone line. At this time, please use your telephone keypad and enter the number of participants that are currently listening in. If you are the only person in the room, enter one. If there are between two and eight of you listening in, enter the corresponding number. If there are nine or more of you in the room, enter nine. Again, if you are the only person in the room, enter one. If there are between two and eight of you listening in, enter the corresponding number. If there are nine or more of you in the room, enter nine. Please hold while we complete the polling. Please continue to hold while we complete the polling. Again, please hold while we complete the polling. Again, please continue to hold while we complete the polling. Thank you for your participation. I'd now like to turn the call back over to Nicole Cooney. Thanks, Holly. Uh, next, Allison Staub, Health Insurance Specialist, will cover the Advanced Alternative Payment Models. Allison? Thank you. I'm going to be starting on slide 50. Um, what is an alternative payment model? Alternative payment models, or APMs, are new approaches, payment models, to paying for medical care through Medicare that incentivize quality and value. APMs are developed in partnership with the clinician community and offer added incentives to clinicians to provide high-quality and cost-efficient care. The CMS Innovation Center develops new payment and service delivery models in accordance with the requirements of the Social Security Act. Additionally, Congress has defined, both through the Affordable Care Act of previous legislation, a number of specific demonstrations to be conducted by CMS. Um, the specific definition of APM under the Quality Payment Program includes, first, CMS Innovation Center models, other than the Healthcare Innovation Awards, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, or MSSP, a demonstration under the Healthcare Quality Demonstration Program, or a demonstration required by federal law. Looking at slide 52, um, I will note that there's a subset of alternative payment models called advanced APMs that we will be focusing on as a track for participation under the quality payment program during this presentation. Um, what are the benefits of participating in an advanced APM? 
First, you get APM-specific rewards. The way that alternative payment models are constructed, there may be rewards for participation that are part of that model's design. In addition, clinicians may have the opportunity through this participation to receive a 5% lump sum incentive payment and to be exempted from um, MIPS reporting and a MIPS adjustment. Going to slide 53, I will get into additional detail about those incentives. For payment years 2019 through 2024, clinicians who meet the requirements to be what's called a qualifying APM participant, or QP, are excluded from misadjustments and receive a 5% lump sum incentive payment for their Part B professional services furnished during the calendar year immediately prior to the payment year for payment years 2019 through 2024. That was a little quick. I will be revisiting that a little more clearly in a later slide. Um, please bear in mind that there is not an explicit incentive in 2025, but qualifying APM participants would be excluded from MIPS reporting requirements and payment adjustments and would, as always, have the potential for rewards under the advanced APMs in which they participate. For payment years 2026 and later, an eligible clinician who is a qualifying APM participant is excluded from MIPS reporting requirements and payment adjustments each year, and in addition will receive a higher physician fee schedule update than those clinicians who are not qualifying APM participants. The physician fee schedule update following beginning in 2026 will be 0.75% annual updates for QPs and 0.25% annual updates for those eligible clinicians who are not QPs. I will talk more about what it means to be a qualifying APM participant shortly. Looking at slide 54, um, this is a nice slide that sort of reflects what we've discussed so far. On the left hand, you'll see that if you're not in an alternative payment model at all, you will have MIPS adjustments associated with your performance under MIPS. If you're in an alternative payment model but not in an advanced APM, you'll still be participating in MIPS. However, you get additional APM-specific incentives based on the design of that model. There's also a special APM scoring standard for certain APMs that helps clinicians seamlessly transition between MIPS and APMs to make sure that they're not duplicating any of their reporting. Finally, on the right side, when we're talking about advanced APMs, that's where you would be excluded from MIPS, get the APM-specific rewards, and the 5% lump sum bonus if you're a qualifying APM participant. Slide 55. Now I'm going to talk about the criteria set forth in the MACRA statute for what makes an APM an advanced APM. These are the criteria where we look at the design or the structure of the model of itself and then would determine that to be an advanced APM. On slide 56, um, to be an advanced APM, the following three requirements must be met. Number one, the APM requires participants to use certified EHR technology. Number two, the APM provides payment for covered professional services based on quality measures comparable to those used in the MIPS quality performance category, and either is a medical home model expanded under CMS Innovation Center authority or requires participants to bear more than nominal amount of financial risk. Be aware that the final rule updated the risk requirement for an advanced APM so that it can be defined in terms of either total Medicare expenditures or participating organizations' Medicare revenue, which may be significantly lower for small practices. 557. 
The first criterion is that the APM entity requires at least 50% of its eligible clinicians to use certified EHR technology. Remember, we want to make sure physicians can move in and out of APM seamlessly without having to run into issues about having different types of technology requirements. So when I'm talking about certified EHR technology here, it means the same as the advancing care information context. So the certified EHR technology is the same. For the shared savings program only, the standard is that the APM may apply a penalty or reward to APM entities based on the degree of certified EHR technology use among eligible clinicians. This fits within its existing structure so that certified EHR technology use actually factors into the amount of shared savings or losses that ACOs can receive under SSP. That element of SSP would meet this requirement. So SSP requires that clinicians report at the group 10 level according to MIPS rule um, for this criterion. Slide 58. The second criterion is MIPS comparable quality measures. An advanced APM must base payment on quality measures that are comparable to those under MIPS quality performance measures. There must be at least one outcome measure under the advanced APM, unless there is not an appropriate outcome measure at the time the advanced APM is developed under MIPS. Um, you're probably wondering what does comparable mean? Comparable means any actual MIPS measures or other measures that are evidence-based, reliable, and valid. Examples would include quality measures that are endorsed by a consensus-based entity, quality measures submitted in response to the MIPS call for quality measures, or any other quality measures that CMS determines to have an evidence-based focus to be reliable and valid. Slide 59. The third criterion requires APM entities. An APM entity is the participant in the APM. So for example, an ACO would be the APM entity. Um, the third criterion requires that they bear more than nominal financial risk. On the left in the box is what kind of arrangements would be considered risk. These arrangements include withholding payment, reduction in payment rates, or direct payment from the APM entity. If we meet that financial risk standard, then we look at total risk. The total risk must be equal to at least 8% of average estimated revenues or 3% of, of expected expenditures. Um, and I will note that we will be making clear which of our alternative payment models meet these thresholds and can walk through those calculations to specific models um, in reference to their design. Um, there are also a few points related specifically to medical homes. The first is that this whole criterion, is the, the entire third criterion is completely met if the alternative payment model is the medical home model expanded under CMS Innovation Center Authority. Um, currently, we do not have any model that meets that part of the criterion. Second, we recognize that pre-expansion medical home models and participants are unique. So there are slightly different standards for those particular medical home models, which we will cover in the next slide. So on slide 60, I'll go back over this concept, um, the more than nominal financial risk with respect to medical home models specifically. You'll notice that the first three arrangements on the left side of the slide are the exact same as the general financial risk standard, but then we added a fourth one specifically for the medical home models. What this states is that there is some expected or regular payment under the APM that could be reduced or eliminated based on performance. The medical home model nominal risk standard is based on parts A and B revenue of the APM entity. These are APM entity specific determinations. This acknowledges that smaller practices are participating in medical home models 
and scales it to look at particular revenue of the participants in the model. Slide 61 um, outlines for the 2017 performance year which models have been determined to be advanced APMs. That's the comprehensive end-stage renal disease care models, two-sided risk arrangement, CPC Plus, FSP tracks two and three, the next generation ACO model, and the oncology care model two-sided risk arrangement. We will continue to update this list as new models are announced in the future. On slide 62, um, the initial list that we just looked at is expected to grow over the coming years, and CMS anticipates that these following models would qualify as advanced APMs in future performance years. Um, CJR, a new voluntary bundled payment model, advancing care coordination through episode payment models, the Vermont Medicare ACO initiative, and ACO Track 1 Plus. Slide 63, what is a qualifying APM participant? Looking on slide 64, how does an eligible clinician become a qualifying APM participant or QP? To do so, the clinician, it's not sufficient to be in an advanced APM. You also have to have a certain percentage of your patients or payments through that advanced APM. And beginning in 2021, this threshold percentage may be reached through a combination of Medicare and other non-Medicare payer arrangements such as private payers and Medicaid. These payment models must meet certain requirements that are similar to the requirements to be an advanced APM under Medicare. This is formally known as the combination all-payer and Medicare threshold option to qualify as a QP. Slide 65. Walking through how we go from an eligible clinician to a QP is what I'll do in the next couple of slides. The period of assessment to determine which eligible clinicians are QPs is the same as the MIPS performance period. It's a full calendar year, two years prior to the payment year. For example, 2017 is the performance period for 2019 payments. Step one is determining QPs at the advanced APM entity level. What that means is we will take all eligible clinicians participating in an advanced APM entity, such as an ACO or a PGP, and assess them together. All of their performance during that year will be aggregated, and the whole group will either become or not become QPs as a unit. There are two exceptions to this rule. First, individuals who participate in multiple, multiple advanced APMs, if none of those advanced APM entities that they're participating in meet the QP threshold as a group, we will look at eligible clinicians on an individual level. The second exception is eligible clinicians on an affiliated practitioner list, so different than the participation list, when that list is used for the QP determination because there are no eligible clinicians on a participation list. For example, this second exception would apply to a model like CJR where participants are hospitals that don't have eligible clinicians on the list, but they would have a list of affiliated practitioners um, who collaborate with the hospitals for participation under the model. Looking at slide 66, the second step, so in step one, we determined who's in the group, how we're looking at them together. Step two is calculating a threshold score for each advanced APM entity. We will use two methods for calculating that threshold score, the payment amount and the patient count. Those are both based on attribution under the design of the particular APM. 
The general idea is that the numerator is looking at beneficiaries who are attributed to that APM entity through whatever terms that APM uses to do attribution. The denominator will be attribution eligible, so all beneficiaries who could potentially be in that numerator. Slide 67. This slide shows the two different methods that we'll use. We'll calculate a threshold score under both of these for each APM entity and take the one that results in a more favorable QP status. On the left, we have the payment amount, me payment amount method, which uses all of the dollars for Part B professional services in the numerator that are attributed to beneficiaries and the same types of services to attribution-eligible beneficiaries in the denominator. On the right, you have the patient count method, which is similar, but we're actually counting numbers of unique people. This is calculated by taking the number of attributed beneficiaries divided by the number of attribution-eligible beneficiaries. Slide 68. The third step is taking the threshold score and comparing those to the thresholds themselves. If a threshold score for the APM entity is above the relevant threshold that's displayed in this table, then the APM entity, so all of the eligible clinicians within that entity, would meet QP status. Um, you'll notice that the thresholds are different based on year and also that the thresholds are higher for the percentage of payments versus the percentage of patients. Slide 69. Um, as I've described, all eligible clinicians in the advanced APM entity would become QPs for the payment year if they meet that threshold. That means for those on the right, if threshold scores are above the QP threshold, all eligible clinicians associated with that APM entity become QPs for that payment year. Whereas on the left, if their threshold scores are below that threshold, then none become QPs for that payment year. Um, and what that would mean is that if none of them become QPs, with one exception that I'll go over in a later slide, they would need to report to MIPS and receive a MIPS adjustment. Slide 70, um, the qualifying APM participant performance period is the period during which CMS will assess eligible clinicians' participation in advanced APMs to determine if they will be QPs for the payment year. So this is the period of time that we're looking at where we're going to run calculations under the payment amount or patient count um, methods to determine if those clinicians are QPs. The QP performance period for each payment year will be January 1st through August 31st of the year that is two years prior to the payment year. So for example, the first QP performance period will be from January 1st, 2017 through August 31st, 2017 for the 2019 payment year. I'm going to skip to slide 72, um, which demonstrates visually when um, calculations will be made. Reaching the QP threshold at any one of the three snapshots will result in QP status for the eligible clinicians in the advanced APM entity. Eligible clinicians will be notified of their QP status after each QP determination is complete, which is illustrated as point D in this slide. Slide 73. If clinicians do not meet the QP threshold, but meet a lower threshold um, within this table, they may become what's called a partial QP. Partial QPs do not receive the 5% APM incentive payment, but they are able to choose whether to participate in MIPS. If they opt into MIPS, they receive a MIPS final score and a MIPS payment adjustment. If they, meet, if they opt out of MIPS, they are exempt from MIPS reporting requirements and payment adjustments. 
Um, and any um, eligible clinicians participating in advanced APMs that don't meet the QP threshold or the partial QP threshold will need to report to MIPS. Next, um, beginning on slide 75, I'll talk about the APM scoring standard. Certain alternative payment models include MIPS eligible clinicians as participants, and they hold their participants accountable for the cost and quality of care provided to Medicare beneficiaries. This type of APM is called a MIPS APM, and participants in MIPS APMs receive special MIPS scoring under what's called the APM scoring standard. Our goal is to reduce eligible clinician reporting burden by streamlining MIPS reporting and scoring using APM-related performance to the extent that we can. Um, on slide 76, what are the requirements for an APM to be considered a MIPS APM? The APM has to meet these three criteria. First, APM entities participate in the APM under an agreement with CMS. Second, the APM entities include one or more MIPS-eligible clinicians on a participation list. And finally, the APM bases payment incentives on performance on cost utilization and quality. Slide 77. To be considered part of the APM entity for the APM scoring standard, an eligible clinician must be on an APM participation list on at least one of the following three snapshot dates of the performance period. If they aren't on an APM participation list during one of these three snapshot dates, they must report to MIPS under the standard MIPS method, so not under the APM scoring standard. Looking at slide 78, um, for the 2017 performance year, these are the models that are considered MIPS APMs, um, CEC, CPC+, MSSP tracks 1, 2, and 3, Next Generation ACO model, and Oncology Care model all arrangements. Um, this list is posted on qpp.cms.gov. We'll be updating it on an ad hoc basis. Um, so slide 80, turning on to 81. Um, what is being done for small and rural practices in health professional shortage areas? Um, if you look at this slide, we have a couple of responses to concerns that we've heard based on the requirements and how smaller rural practices will be able to succeed in the quality payment program. This is something that we've paid a lot of attention to and um, have a lot of focus on. So where can you go to learn more? Um, slide 83, we have the Transforming Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, TCPI, is a resource, the Quality Innovation Network, Quality Improvement Organizations, um, and if you're in an APM, the Innovation Center's learning systems can help you find specialized, um, specialized information about what you need to do. Um, and slide 84, to remind you that this was a final rule with comments, so if you do have comments that you want to submit, um, we have the information here. And broadly, I would encourage you to look at qpp.cms.gov, um, not only to submit comments, but for additional information and resources. At this point, I will turn it over to Nicole Cooney, and we will do some Q&A. Thanks, Allison. Our experts are now ready to take your questions. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that this call is being recorded and transcribed. We have a lot of folks on the line with us today. In an effort to get to as many questions as possible, we ask that you limit your questions to just one. Um, and uh, we can address 
additional questions as time permits. All right, Holly, we're ready to take our first question. To ask a question, press star followed by the number one on your touchtone phone. To remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Remember to pick up your handset before asking your question to assure clarity. Please note, your line will remain open during the time you are asking your question, so anything you say or any background noise will be heard in the conference. And our first question will come from the line of Deanne McAllen. Hi. Hi. Can see about the status of the direct technical assistance and if it's potentially slowed down because of the 2017 pick your pace or is it anticipated to be rolled out shortly? Uh, give us one second. Hi, this is uh, Kate Goodrich from CMS. Uh, just uh, thanks for the question. Just to be sure I understand, you're asking if there's going to be any slowdown in the availability and implementation of the technical assistance, such as the TCPI and the uh, technical assistance for small practices, because of the Pick Your Pace program. Is that correct? Yeah, so folks are looking for direct technical assistance, and the awards have not been made, and it's difficult gotcha. to respond whether it's available, if it's coming soon. Sure. So much of the later. technical assistance is already available. So the, there's technical assistance available from the quality improvement networks that is primarily focused on larger practices, practices of 15 or more. There's the Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, which has a goal of reaching 140,000 clinicians. That is primarily focused on practices that are ready to begin the transformation to alternative payment models. I think what you're referring to probably is the technical assistance that will be available uh, for small and rural uh, practices and practices in health professional shortage areas. Um, that is on track uh, to be uh, available starting probably early 2017. Uh, there's nothing about uh, the Pick Your Pace program that uh, would slow that down, so we're definitely on track for that. Uh, so there will be more information coming to the qpp.cms.gov website uh, in the very near future about that. Thank you so much for your question. Next and question. Our next question will come from the line of Judith Shobo. Hi, Judith. What's your question? That question has been withdrawn. Your next question will come from the line of Kim Sweet. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hi. Slide 45 has a wonderful chart. I really like this chart for the transition year um, for the possible possibility of getting your positive adjustments of over 70 points and so on. My question is, where do, do we have a breakdown of where those points are coming from? I know that the quality program is worth 60 points. I was wondering, is there a breakdown yet of each category, where, um, what those possible points will be? And if so, where can uh, I find that? Uh, thanks for your question. Uh, this is Lamenta Tafera. Uh, so just to clarify the difference between the points and the percentages for the performance categories, uh, in previous slides you'll see that the uh, quality performance category is weighted at 60%. Uh, the cost performance category is weighted at 0%. The improvement activities performance category is weighted 
at 15%, 1.5, and the advancing care information performance category is weighted at uh, 25%. Um, uh, so Correct, that, that's how the different categories are weighted. The, the difference here, uh, transitioning to points, is, is talking about how the, uh, the uh, combination of performance in those particular categories will provide the clinician an opportunity to re receive a, a positive or negative uh, payment adjustment. Uh, starting at the top, uh, you know, clinicians who achieve uh, the highest scores above the 70 are those that will be eligible uh, for the exceptional performance. Um, the, the large uh, band uh, in between is where we think uh, the majority of clinicians uh, uh, will fall between four and, and 69 points. Um, and the lowest two bands uh, are really uh, for, uh, for clinicians who opt out and don't participate uh, or who minimally uh, participate. Um, and, you know, where clinicians land in those different bands will determine uh, will be determined by whether uh, they uh, decide based on uh, their particular practice if they are going to um, uh, just test the waters in the transition year or, or provide more uh, uh, robust reporting with uh, at least 90 consecutive days uh, or try for a full reporting year uh, for all the different uh, performance categories. Um, I, I thank you for the question. But that didn't answer my question. That was, um, I completely understand that. I just don't know what makes up those. What, what makes up those particular uh, points is the, uh, uh, the particular metrics that are chosen. So depending on how many measures, for example, are chosen in the quality performance category, that will determine uh, you know, how many points they will get in the quality uh, uh, performance uh, category, and uh, that will extrapolate to the total number of points for for what you're seeing in this transition year table. Thank you so much. Next question, please, Holly. Our next question will come from the line of Jason Shropshire. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. So I'm having difficulty um, finding the answer to this question. I've emailed a couple of contacts, uh, QPP and, and various other uh, entities, and haven't received a response. So my question is specific to advanced APM, specifically next gen. When will we know the exact measures that make up the 2017 uh, quality component for next gen? I know in 2016 it was comprised of GPRO web interface and claims measures and CAPS measures. Is that going to be exactly the same for 2017? And if so, when and where will that list be published? It's, oh, yes. Uh, this is Patrice Holt. So for the next generation uh, ACOs, under the MIPS APM scoring standard, the measures that they will be scored in for MIPS will be the web interface measures only. So any measure uh, that's submitted via the web interface will count towards the MIPS APM quality score. But what about the non-MIPS, just the actual ACO score? What counts for that? Oh, I'm sorry. We don't have our next generation ACO uh, 
staff with us today. So that would be a question that should go directly to the program. Okay, so I've sent the question and have not gotten a response in two weeks. Should I just send it again? Yes, please do. We'll notify Thanks. them as well. Thank you. And our next question will come from the line of Lisa Gall. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm, um, I have a question regarding slide 34. And if um, for advancing care information, if objectives are not applicable to a clinician, uh, it says that CMS will reweight the category to zero and assign the 25% to the other performance categories. Can you tell me where um, those um, and how that's weighted out and where it's weighted out to, I'm assuming to quality and to um, advancing, in, um, I mean, improvement activities, but how does that get separated out? What, where does the 25% go? Just to quality? So the, the score, the 25% advancing care information would be zero, and then all that, that 25 would move to the quality category. So it does move to quality. Thank you. And our next question will come from the line of Dr. Deborah Tracy. Uh, yes, good afternoon. Thank you. I have a question regarding the quality category. On slide 20, you say to avoid the downward adjustment, you need one quality measure. Is that one quality measure on one patient or one quality measure on the performance period? And later, that's not on a slide, you said you would allow measure set reporting. So I would imagine you're referring to the group measures that we used to report, and last year we could only report those through a registry, and it was 20 patients. So would that be the same as well? Thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for your question. Uh, this is Lamenta Tafer again. So on slide 20, uh, what that's trying to describe is that if you do report a, a single measure, uh, even for um, a single patient, uh, and you successfully report that, uh, it's possible to meet the, the minimum requirement and avoid uh, the maximum uh, negative uh, adjustment. Um, uh, obviously, based on your question, it, it sounds like you've, you've had previous experience reporting, uh, so the other two options are probably you know, more attractive to be more successful in the transition year and the QPP program overall. Your, your second question regarding uh, the, uh, the uh, combined reporting, uh, in the final uh, rule, uh, there are a specialty uh, set measure sets uh, that are described, and if uh, uh, clinicians or groups report those specialty measure sets, uh, then uh, they can achieve uh, the highest score for the uh, quality performance category. And those are different uh, from the specialty sets that you described. So the final rule describes uh, uh, quality measure specialty sets that will satisfy uh, uh, maximum performance in the quality uh, performance category. Uh, thank you again for your question. And our next question will come from the line of Bonnie Schock. Hello. Do you have a hello, hello. Thank you. Yes, I do. I'm looking at slide 77, 
uh, the key dates for the APM scoring standard. Uh, we're part of a, a MIPS APM, an MSSP Track 1, and we uh, are required to send in our provider list uh, every year in December, and then we are required to send in updates when a new provider joins us. Uh, and we need to do that within 30 days of his her onboarding. But um, I don't understand from this that if uh, we have a provider uh, join us, say, September 1st, that provider will not be considered part of our ACO and has to separately uh, report MIPS to avoid the adjustment? That is correct. So uh, for the 2017 performance year reporting in 2018, the participants have to be a participant of the ACO um, at least during one of those three snapshot dates. So for example, if you're in the ACO on March 31st, but you choose to leave the ACO um, later in the year, you're still counted as being under the APM scoring standard, but if you don't join the ACO until later in the year, uh, you would not be counted under the MIPS APM scoring standard, and you would be responsible for reporting on your own, either as an individual or through another group uh, under MIPS requirements. Thank you. And our next question will come from the line of Julia Kyles. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, when and where will CMS post the quality measure specifications for 2017? Hi, this is uh, Lamenta again. So uh, you've likely seen our website already uh, that's given, uh, giving an introduction to um, how the shop shopping cart works for uh, viewing various measures. Uh, so we're working on uh, developing uh, a uh, uh, an online portal, the, the portal that will take folks directly from uh, that uh, uh, that site uh, to the specifications for the individual measures. That's that's in process, and uh, when when that is uh, available and ready, we will announce it. Okay. Quick follow up: Will you also still be releasing that uh, document that shows everything that changed for the different measures? Not sure which document you're, you're referring to, uh, but the, the the measure specification details that will be released will will be uh, comprehensive, uh, and if you uh, received them in the past, I, I suspect they'll be in the same uh, uh, same format as you're accustomed to. Brilliant, thank you. And our next question will come from the line of Marie Harris. Hello, did you have a question? Oh, can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Okay, great. Um, I'm wondering, we have a few of our providers that um, are not on the EHR and are still using paper. Are they able to participate in MIPS? And if so, in what of the, which of the four capacities? Hi, this is uh, Lamenta Tafer again. Uh, so again, uh, there are multiple opportunities to participate in the quality payment program. There are four performance categories, uh, of which you've, you've mentioned one. And in the transition year, to be successful uh, and avoid the negative penalty, uh, reporting uh, in the quality performance category or the improvement activities performance category 
uh, would, would help the clinicians you describe uh, be successful for the transition year. Uh, in regards to their, uh, their reporting practice, uh, it sounds like uh, these clinicians uh, uh, may have difficulty with, with uh, uh, certified EHR technology and would benefit uh, from the technical assistance that we've previously discussed and, and would, would uh, be able to better prepare themselves for year two and onward. Uh, so, yes, they can be successful in the transition year, uh, but they will uh, uh, need to look for opportunities to improve their electronic health records for uh, year two and onward. So would they report, would we report via claims like we would with PQRS? Yeah, so for, for, for quality measures, yes, uh, you, can, you can also uh, report uh, uh, by claims if, if that particular quality measure has, has that option available. Okay. All right, thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Dr. Sean Kwam Khan. Okay, our next question will come from the line of Luann Gaggy. Hi, thank you. Um, this is a question that I have not that I have not had addressed. Is how does this affect locum tenants in your practice? So this is Lamenta Tafer again. I I think the the way to view who is impacted by the quality payment program is that all clinicians who participate in Part B Medicare uh, need to participate uh, in uh, the MIPS program unless they have an exemption. And those exemptions are uh, seeing very few Medicare beneficiaries, less than 100, uh, charging very little in Medicare, which is less than 30,000, or being a, a, a qualified participant in an advanced alternative payment model. If, if the clinician does not have uh, one of those exemptions, uh, regardless of their specialty or how often they're practiced, locums or otherwise, the expectation is that they will need to participate uh, in the MIPS program. Even if reassigning the benefits to the, to the physician that they're working under? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay, and our next question will come from the line of Vicki Bariki. Hi. Hello? Hi, did you have a question? Yes. Um, so I had sat in on another QPP webinar a few weeks ago, and they said that to qualify for the full year of, our, of participation, it would be any time from 90 days up to a full year. So if we reported 91 days, you would qualify for having submitted for the full year. Is that correct? Hi, uh, this is uh, Lamenta Tafera. Uh, I, I think what was trying to be expressed is that uh, clinicians who seek to uh, fully participate and fully report uh, uh, quality uh, measures in, in that particular case uh, have the opportunity to do that uh, throughout the year. Uh, so there's a 90 consecutive day uh, minimum threshold, uh, but uh, the, the more reporting that is done, uh, the more successful clinicians can be. Uh, the extent of the reporting will vary uh, by some measures that require uh, longer periods uh, um, than others. Uh, but I think uh, as a, as a high-level guide, uh, uh, clinicians who participate 
um, and, and report uh, throughout as much of the year as possible, uh, uh, much more than 91 days, but less than the maximum possible number of days will, uh, will be more successful than those who just do 90 days. Okay, so it's a 90 consecutive day minimum, and then if we can report additional throughout the year, then all the better. Is that, that is right? Correct. That is correct. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. And our next question will come from the line of Salish Dixit. Hello, did yeah, you have a question? Yes. Are you able to hear me? Yes. Um, I had a quick question. I was re one of the sections on the final rule for ACI. It mentioned that if an individual provider is excluded from a certain ACI measure, right, then that provider should be excluded from group reporting. Um, meaning, basically, if the provider is a part of a group, then just for that one particular ACI measure, that provider should be excluded and uh, submitted the data for the rest of the other group. So what is the expectations for the vendors uh, from CMS's perspective when uh, or how, you know, uh, you are expecting us to support uh, those kind of scenarios? If a particular provider can't report on a measure, their information would still be transmitted along with the group's information. They're not excluded. Correct. They just wouldn't be performing on that measure, and that would be fine. That would be fine, right? So it's not mm -hmm. as if, like, we report only three providers for one certain measure and then rest of the group for the other measures that they are reporting, correct? Yes. Okay. Thank you. And our next question will come from the line of Scott Welsh. Hi. Uh, I had a question regarding specialty-specific measure sets. Uh, in reviewing the document, I realized that some of the specialty-specific measure sets are way over six uh, quality measures. So is there any incentive to actually reporting anything over six when you're doing those specialty sets? Hi, this is uh, uh, Lamena Tafera. Uh, so the... the uh, the advantage or the... the um, uh, the extra points are for reporting measures uh, that are uh, appropriate use um, uh, and outcome focused. Uh, if the specialty set has more than uh, the six available, then uh, you can choose uh, your preference uh, for the six minimum. If your specialty set happens to have less than six, uh, for example, four, if you report all of those four, then you would have successfully completed the requirement uh, to, to maximally uh, score for the quality performance category. Uh, what we were hoping to do uh, uh, when uh, there was an opportunity to provide uh, more, uh, uh, more options for clinicians is include as many as possible so that clinicians would be the ones uh, who can choose uh, their preference of what to report. Okay, got it. Thank you. At this time, I'd like to uh, introduce Dr. Kate Goodrich, Director of our Center for Clinical Standards and Quality, for a few final thoughts. Kate? Yes, thank you. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, it's been great to listen to the presentation and to hear all of your questions. I have no doubt that there are many more questions on your mind, and unfortunately, we don't have time uh, for all of them, but we know that there's many more out there. We are very, very aware that um, there's a lot of information to digest. 
um, that the quality payment program is complex. We know that. Um, and, uh, and really appreciate your attention to th uh, today to the presentation and for all the questions that we've gotten. We are working as hard as possible to make this information about the quality payment program as accessible and understandable as possible. Um, I know that uh, others on the call, and I presume Andy, when he opened the call, talked about our, our website, which undoubtedly many, if not most of you, have gone to, qpp.cms. Gov that has quite a bit of information on it. Um, but as we are hearing in your questions today and have been hearing since we launched the website and the final regulation, um, there's, there's still more that people want to know. And so we do have the ability to continue to rapidly update our website as well as all of our materials as we hear from you. Um, and we want to hear what you need that isn't on the website or that hasn't been available, what needs to be clearer, and um, importantly, what kinds of tools that you, that you all would need that would be most helpful to help you succeed in the quality payment program. I'm sure Andy talked about the fact that this program, and in particular the first year, uh, transition year of the program, was designed with a great deal of input from clinicians and, and other stakeholders, including practice managers, uh, patients, consumers, and so forth. Um, it is going to be a much longer journey to get to a program that is the most um, useful to clinicians to help them take uh, the best care of their patients that they possibly can, and that truly improves the outcomes for patients. We think that this is this first year is the first good step in that direction to help people understand what it is that they need to do uh, to be successful. But we fully intend uh, for the program uh, to evolve over time as we learn what works well and what needs to be improved. And so to that end, we hope that you all um, have, uh, con are continuing to digest the final rule. It is a final rule with comment. We would like for you to send in your comments to us by December 19th, and we will be using those comments in addition to our ongoing outreach to inform the second year of the program as well as the long-term future of the program. And we will continue to use our uh, user-centered design practices and approach to uh, not only the design of the program, but also for our website and all of our operations and the information that we communicate to all of you. And then finally, just to reiterate, um, help is available. Um, we've talked some about the technical assistance that is out there already and that is coming. Much more information uh, will be coming about that, but we are deeply committed to uh, providing that technical assistance and working with medical societies and specialty societies and other stakeholders such as vendors um, to help clinicians to be as successful as possible in this program. So please return to our website frequently for updates uh, on the program to get your questions answered, uh, but also related to the technical assistance. So thank you very much for attending today, um, and have a good day. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today's call. We'll post an audio recording and written transcript on the MLN Connects call website, and we'll release an announcement in the MLN Connects provider e-news when these are available. All registrants for today's call will receive an email with a URL to evaluate your experience with today's call. Evaluations are anonymous, confidential, and voluntary. We hope you'll take a few minutes to evaluate your experience. 
Again, my name is Nicole Cooney, and I would like to thank our presenters and also thank you for participating in today's MLN Connects Quality Payment Program Final Rule Call. Have a great day. This concludes today's conference call. Presenters, please hold. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.